right, we are back on the show. And I would like to start this episode with the disclaimer that this podcast is independent of my research and teaching roles at Maastricht University. And I'm doing this podcast independent on my own initiative. In line with the two previous episodes where we had Courtney Peterson as a guest speaking about time-restricted eating, the topic of today's episode will still be within that theme of when to eat and how much to eat maybe at different times of the day. And for that purpose, I have a speaker that published a recent paper in Cell Metabolism, as you may know from other episodes by now, a very prestigious journal within the field of metabolism research. And her study was based around the concept of eating breakfast like a king. So that means that you put most of your calories of, the, of what you eat during the day into the breakfast and then progressively eat less in other meals of the day. So in that particular study, they had people eating breakfast like a king, less for lunch and even less for dinner and compared that, compared that to the opposite condition of eating most of your calories with dinner, a little bit less with lunch and the lowest calorie meal of the day is then the breakfast. And our guest is Professor Alex Johnstone from Aberdeen University in Scotland. And she's an expert on human appetite control, specifically on the role of dietary proteins in that regard. But she also got recent funding on the questions of chrononutrition. So when to eat, and that will be the focus of our discussion today. And without further ado, we will go right into the recording with Professor Alex Johnstone. I welcome Alex Johnstone on the 24-7 Muscle Podcast. I'm happy to have you here today, Alex. And um, as with all my guests, I would like to first ask you about your background in terms of what did you study, where did you study, and uh, what is the how did you get into the research field that you are currently in so yes thank you for inviting me to speak with you today it's always really nice to speak about um science so it's interesting you ask about my science journey i never really planned to be a scientist <laughs> uh, of course i was interested in science and when i did my master's degree when i was based at the university of aberdeen i loved doing my research project i felt that I had found something that I wholeheartedly enjoyed. I realised then very much that it was hard work and I embraced that and went on to do my PhD looking at rate and extent of weight loss also in Aberdeen. Um, and I love you know, living and working in Scotland. Um, it has got a great work-life balance and I love you know being near the Cairngorms and uh, beside the sea and embrace sort of outdoor lifestyles. So yes, I really enjoy being at the Rowett. Great. And uh, today I will I would like to mostly discuss one of your recent papers that came out a few months ago in Cell Metabolism. And I will mention uh, the title so that listeners can follow along and if they want to read the paper first and then join our discussion. So the, the title of the paper is Timing of daily calorie loading affects appetite and hunger responses without changes in energy metabolism and 
in healthy subjects with obesity. And I guess before we really dive into the paper, Alex, I would like to ask you to kind of set the stage for us about what do we know about the timing of food intake with respect to metabolic health effects and weight management. Yeah, okay. So I suppose where I started this journey in 2017, and uh, at that time, I was really interested in uh, the statement, well, a calorie is a calorie no matter what time of the day it's consumed across the day. And that's our current uh, advice for uh, weight loss. But um, there were some papers that had been published um, which really challenged that point of view. And I want to really focus on the human studies today rather than trying to delve into all the circadian rhythm and the rodent work. So there was two particular studies that were published as intervention studies, one by Marta Garley in 2013, and they reported that in women, and she's based in Spain, women who consumed more calories uh, earlier in the day compared to a group, so it's a parallel design that consumed calories later in the day, those that consumed more calories early in the day lost more weight. Now, that's really interesting because there was also another paper published the same year by Ujeli Group, uh, Jakovic et al. Um, they also showed that in overweight people that early eating promoted greater weight loss. Now, that's really interesting because what would the mechanisms of that be? They reported that uh, appetite was similar. They reported that these were with isocaloric diets. And what I mean by that is they were reporting consuming the same amount of calories. So um, it kind of hinted that perhaps a calorie wasn't just a calorie after all. There was something going on with energy metabolism, particularly linked to early in the day. And of course, that could be linked to circadian rhythm effects. And there is a, a whole host of uh, literature in animal models and neurine models um, showing that in rodents, of course, they have a different light-dark cycle. So when uh, experimental animals are fed a high-fat diet during daylight hours, and remember, that's kind of the wrong time for nocturnal rodents, they become obese. And that's despite consuming the same amount of energy relative to those fed in the dark cycle, which is the correct cycle for a, a rodent. So this really hinted that um, there was something to investigate here, whether time of eating was important to influence weight loss. And um, from, from these findings, I would, of course, soon go into the study design and results of your specific study here. But I think what you really did great in that paper, and especially in the introduction, is to introduce some concepts um, which I think are also nice to recap a little bit about for the listeners that are less familiar with this kind of research field. So you mentioned three potential mechanisms that could account for the differential energy utilization in the in the more uh, morning uh, eating group, uh, leading to the differential weight effect or weight loss effect. Um, could you elaborate on these three mechanisms? Yeah, so it's really thinking now about the components of energy expenditure. Um, so uh, that's thinking about 
as a simplistic point of view, we could think about total daily energy expenditure, which is, if you think about energy balance as a simplistic energy in and energy out point of view, then total energy expenditure embraces all energy um, expended. And of course, if you're losing weight, you'll be in a negative energy balance. And we use a really neat tool, a gold standard stabiliser tool, which is W water to measure total energy expenditure. And you give a dose of um, deuterium and O18. And in our study, we're measuring over four weeks. So we got two doses and that just gives you a, a total amount of energy expenditure over the two weeks. So you average it over the 14 days. So that's nice because it's an um, uh, objective measurement of energy expenditure. And of course, there's components uh, of that within the body, which is resting metabolic rate, which is the minimum amount of energy your body requires at rest. It's usually measured so in that particular study, they had people eating breakfast like a king, less for lunch and even less for dinner, and compared that, compared that to the opposite condition of eating most of your calories with dinner, a little bit less with lunch, and the lowest calorie meal of the day is then the breakfast. And our guest is Professor Alex Johnstone from Aberdeen University in Scotland. And she's an expert on human appetite control, specifically on the role of dietary proteins in that regard. But she also got recent funding on the questions of chrononutrition. So when to eat, and that will be the focus of our discussion today. And without further ado, we will go right into the recording with Professor Alex Johnstone. I welcome Alex Johnstone on the 24-7 Muscle Podcast. I'm happy to have you here today, Alex. And um, as with all my guests, I would like to first ask you about your background in terms of what did you study, where did you study, and uh, what is the, how did you get into the research field that you are currently in? So yes, thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. It's always really nice to speak about um, science. So it's interesting you ask about my science journey. I never really planned to be a scientist. <laughs> uh, of course, I was interested in science. And when I did my master's degree, when I was based at the University of Aberdeen, I loved doing my research project. I felt that I had found something that I wholeheartedly enjoyed. I realised then very much that it was hard work and I embraced that and went on to do my PhD looking at rate and extent of weight loss also in Aberdeen. Um, and I love you know, living and working in Scotland. Um, it has got a great work-life balance and I love you know being near the Cairngorms and uh, beside the sea and embrace sort of outdoor lifestyle. So yes, I really enjoy being at the Rowett. Great. And uh, today I will I would like to mostly discuss one of your recent papers that came out a few months ago in cell metabolism. And I will mention uh, the title so that listeners can follow along and if they want to read the paper first and then join our discussion. So the, the title of the paper is Timing of daily calorie loading affects appetite and hunger responses without changes in energy metabolism and in healthy subjects with obesity. 
And I guess before we really dive into the paper, Alex, I would like to ask you to kind of set the stage for us about what do we know about the timing of food intake with respect to metabolic health effects and weight management. Yeah, okay. So I suppose where I started this journey in 2017, and uh, at that time, I was really interested in uh, the statement, well, a calorie is a calorie no matter what time of the day it's consumed across the day. And that's our current uh, advice for uh, weight loss. But um, there were some papers that had been published um, which really challenged that point of view. And I want to really focus on the human studies today rather than trying to delve into all the circadian rhythm and the rodent work. So there was two particular studies that were published as intervention studies, one by Marta Garley in 2013, and they reported that in women, and she's based in Spain, women who consumed more calories uh, earlier in the day compared to a group, so it's a parallel design that consumed calories later in the day, those that consumed more cal calories early in the day lost more weight. Now, that's really interesting because there was also another paper published the same year by Urzeli Group, uh, Jakovic et al. Um, they also showed that in overweight people that early eating promoted greater weight loss. Now, that's really interesting because what would the mechanisms of that be? They reported that uh, appetite was similar. They reported that these were with isocaloric diets. And what I mean by that is they were reporting consuming the same amount of calories. So um, it kind of hinted that perhaps a calorie wasn't just a calorie after all. There was something going on with energy metabolism, particularly linked to early in the day. And of course, that could be linked to circadian rhythm effects. And there is a whole host of uh, literature in animal models and neurine models um, showing that in rodents, of course, they have a different light-dark cycle. So when uh, experimental animals are fed a high-fat diet during daylight hours, and remember, that's kind of the wrong time for nocturnal rodents, they become obese. And that's despite consuming the same amount of energy relative to those fed in the dark cycle, which is the correct cycle for a, a rodent. So this really hinted that um, there was something to investigate here, whether time of eating was important to influence weight loss. And um, from, from these findings, I would, of course, soon go into the study design and results of your specific study here. But I think what you really did great in that paper, and especially in the introduction, is to introduce some concepts, um, which I think are also nice to recap a little bit about for the listeners that are less familiar with this kind of research field. So you mentioned three potential mechanisms that could account for the differential energy utilization in the in the more uh, morning uh, eating group, uh, leading to the differential weight effect or weight loss effect. Um, could you elaborate on these three mechanisms? Yeah, so it's really thinking now about the components of energy expenditure. Um, so uh, that's thinking about, as a simplistic point of view, we could think about total daily energy expenditure. 
which is, if you think about energy balance as a simplistic energy in and energy out point of view, then total energy expenditure embraces all energy um, expended. And of course, if you're losing weight, you'll be in a negative energy balance. And we use a really neat tool, our gold standard stabiliser tool, which is W water to measure total energy expenditure. And you give a dose of um, deuterium and O18. And in our study, we we're measuring over four weeks. So we got two doses. And that just gives you a, a total amount of energy expenditure over the two weeks. So you average it over the 14 days. So that's nice because it's an um, uh, objective measurement of energy expenditure. And of course, there's components uh, of that within the body, which is resting metabolic rate which is the minimum amount of energy your body requires at rest. It's usually measured after an overnight fast um, in the morning, at rest in a thermoneutral environment, so before breakfast. And that's really tracking the amount of energy that the body requires to keep the body processes ticking over, whether it's digestion, absorption from the day before, the, the brain, the lungs, the heart, etc and the organs, of course. And then the other component, which is measured postprandially, i.e. after eating, is the thermic effect of food. And uh, what you do there is give a standard test meal and then measure uh, energy expenditure. And you can relate that to differences from the baseline, which is recorded, remember, before eating. So these are all um, pretty standard techniques that we have in our uh, laboratory. And um, we can you know, track that over time and in response to weight loss as well. And I guess if you see changes in weight loss in, in your participants, uh, then it could be certain changes in, in, in all these components. Um, and what you also mentioned were uh, things like behavioral adaptation, things like, so that could be, I guess, physical activity, for example, um, but then also you discussed the influence of, of the circadian rhythm component on energy mm -hmm. metabolism. Can you explain yeah. that a little bit further? So, um, yeah, so when we think about response and energy metabolism, you're quite right. So in my mind, I've categorized them as sort of physiological and behavioral. So behavioral for sure would be that uh, we know that from previous work, if people skip breakfast, their energy, their habitual or uh, physical activity patterns drop a little bit. And it evens out by the end of the day, but um, that could be um, a physiological response or more likely, I would suggest, a behavioural response. Um, circadian rhythm, so um, circa, remember, is a Latin meaning around a day. Circadian rhythm is a natural um, sort of ebb and flow in response to light and dark cycle in humans. So remember, in humans, we're naturally awake and active during the light cycle and sleeping and inactive during the dark cycle. And we tend to eat our foods during the light cycle and sleep and not eat during the dark cycle. And uh, anything that perturbs that uh, can lead to dysregulation um, and dysfunction, and that can impact on metabolic health. And a classic experiment would be, or a classic scenario could be people who work shifts are obviously um, often reversing that, particularly those that are working night shifts or variable shifts. Or I suppose jet lag could be another paradigm where 
the clock time is desynchronized from your habitual light cycle and that causes digestive upset, etc. So, so those are a couple of paradigms that you can kind of try and explain in terms of uh, what we mean. So coming back, circadian rhythm, um, other papers have suggested that there's a circadian rhythm effect on thermic effect of food. We've published previous work that uh, would refute that and that we suggest that some of those effects where um, the thermic effect is perhaps different at different times of day is just linked to that you're from uh, breakfast to evening. You, you never actually reach that fasted and purely baseline state of energy expenditure. So when you eat, energy expenditure rises in response to eating and that's a thermic effect of food, and then it doesn't quite drop down to baseline, and then you have your next meal, which will be your evening meal, and rises again. So, so we've published some previous work on that, if, if your listeners are interested in some of the modelling that we've done there. Yeah, great. Thanks for, for explaining some basic principles here. And I guess with that, we can move on to the uh, tiny details of the study. And there I would like to ask that you get us started by explaining the study design and yeah, yeah I, I mean it's yeah. quite a complex study so maybe we can do it a little bit together if I if I remember something that you might forget yeah okay <laughs> so first first point to note is this is a within subject design it's not a parallel design that I described before where there's two groups of people who compare the two groups what we're using here is a within subject design so each subject acts as their own control so each subject receives both diet treatments with a washout in between. So that, that's quite standard in my lab. It's an approach I take in most of our studies, and that's because I'm really interested in appetite. And appetite is, of course, a subjective sensation. If we discussed how hungry or full we felt just now, it will reflect our own personal previous and habitual experiences of eating today. So... It's, um, I'm not comparing me to you in the study design, I'm comparing myself on diet A and diet B. So that's a very strong design. And what we did was recruited 30 men and women who were classified as overweight or obese. And we measured their resting energy requirements. All the subjects had a, a baseline or a maintenance period to start with. Again, that's quite standard where they're fed energy balance. That means energy starting the same baseline in terms of energy balance it's a constant and then they're randomly assigned to diet a or diet b which is what we call in the paper uh, morning loaded or evening loaded or i could call them myself i call them the big breakfast or the small breakfast and that's in combination with so a big breakfast is in combination with um, a small dinner and a small breakfast is in combination with a big dinner so it's actually a large breakfast. So it's 45% of calories at breakfast, 35% uh, at lunch, that was constant, and 20% at dinner, or vice versa, 20% at breakfast and 45 in the evening. And I think it's interesting to note here, how does that compare to in the UK? So in the UK, the, uh, we tend to consume most of our calories in the evening. So that's, that's a more traditional or habitual um, pattern that we'd see in the UK. So 20% at breakfast, we eat on the go, we eat smaller meals, and then eat more calories in the evening. Yeah, just so, to add to that, it's the same in the Netherlands. So the, the typical Dutch diet, and that's also what we give in our studies, 
is I think even 49% of total daily energy intake for dinner. And yes. people struggle with that in the laboratory <laughs> condition, but it's, yeah, because they have to eat it in one go, mm -hmm. usually, as as I guess in your study as well. But yes. I think if you look at yes. how, how you spread your calories over the evening, like maybe over three hours by snacking and so on, then I guess it's it's definitely true for most people. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I suppose the one of the other um, strengths of this study is that we have facilities at the Rowett Institute to make up individual diets. So diets, so the subjects received a complete diet. So they received all their meals, which were fed to their energy requirements for both um, diet arms. And then just to touch on composition, to get into some of the details, yes, we used a slightly higher protein diet, and that's to be nice for volunteers because losing weight uh, is you're going to feel hungry. So it's 30% protein, 35% uh, fat, 35% carbohydrate. And that's just to promote some satiety during the weight loss period. So all the both diets were the same composition. It's just the calorie loading that was different. And then I suppose it's a, a pre-post design in that we take measurements before and after each diet period with a washout in between. And uh, I think in terms of male and females, that was balanced, right? I'm trying to remember that myself. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm I'll just. Have we a... tried to balance it. I think it was maybe just it was sixteen fourteen. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think so I remember very, somebody. Very well balanced. Was, yes. Uh -huh. Sixteen yeah, male, fourteen female. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think just important to mention because the the one of the studies you mentioned in the beginning was only looking at women. I think right. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But unfortunately, we don't have enough power in this study to pull out gender. Yeah. So I, um, even though we do have both genders, I can't make any statements about gender effects, which is a shame. That would be something nice to do in the future. And maybe a few more questions on your test battery in terms of parameters that you looked at. I mean, yes. you had your DEXA scans. You, of course, looked at blood pressure, at um, <laughs> gastric emptying. You took some blood samples. You had continuous glucose monitors. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on, on these other outcomes. Yes. Okay, so the, let's start with the DEXA. We did the four compartment model of body composition, which is also neat. So using DEXA, a dual X-ray energy to measure bone mass, using BODPOD to measure um, body density, and using, uh, using deuterium dilution to measure total body water. So that means you can get a full profile of changes in fat mass, fat-free mass, indeed protein mass. And body water. So we measured, uh, took blood samples, uh, fasted and in response to the test meal. We used stable isotopes to measure gastric emptying that's in the breath. And yes, the continuous glucose monitoring system is really neat because it allows us to assess compliance. That's nice because you can see the peaks when as soon as somebody eats a rise in interstitial glucose. And we measured appetite through using subjective visual analog scales, but also measuring changes in gut hormones. And uh, I think with that, we can we, we have the study design and parameters that you looked at covered. So uh, what, in your opinion, are the, the main results and the most mm. interesting to discuss? Yeah, so I suppose the main thing is coming back to what we're thinking is a calorie a calorie in terms of weight loss so 
We report almost identical weight loss between the two diets, um, and that was measured over the 20, 28 days. So from that, we can conclude that changes in energy balance were similar. And indeed, if you remember, the energy intakes are fixed, so even accounting for leftovers, energy intake in the morning loaded regime, that's big breakfast, 1,736. In the evening loaded, 1,749. And actually, it's really neat. We, uh, from our total daily energy expenditure, uh, is very similar as well within 30 calories. So it's 2,871 kilocals expended in the morning loaded and 2,846 kilocals expended in the evening loaded. So that's really neat that these measurements of energy balance are um, telling us the same story. Uh, in that there is no effect on calorie loading on the ability to lose weight. And with with these findings in mind, because you mentioned it before, would you then still argue a calorie independent of its when it's taken in is a calorie? Or what do you take away from these? That's quite a leading question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. so there's two parts to that, right? Yeah. In the context of energy metabolism, a calorie is a calorie. So we couldn't detect any differences in energy metabolism, which was linked to the time of day of eating. But of course, I'm an appetite researcher. I know a calorie isn't just a calorie. And that we did report changes in appetite control linked to time of eating. So if we move on to that, what we show in the paper is some nice data from the lab environment but also some using the visual analogue scales and the visual analogue scales in the free living environment. So when the subjects were at home and they get their food given to them. So what we showed was that appetite was lower. So that meant that subjects were uh, less hungry, more full uh, when they consumed the morning loaded or the big breakfast regime. And I think that's really important and interesting because of course, a criticism of this study is that it's in the lab environment, which is great for that degree of control. But what we want to do is produce research that's translatable into the real world. So that would suggest to me is one of the important findings to translate, to add to a toolkit for those people who are trying to lose weight and that those subjects, when, they, when, the, when the subjects were consuming the big breakfast, they were better able to control their appetite throughout the rest of the day. And how how was that supported by your hunger and satiety hormones? Maybe you can add that to the to the visual analog scale that people filled out. So the appetite scale is a mathematical um, score, which is calculated as hunger plus 100 minus fullness. Because remember, fullness is a reciprocal phenomenon to hunger and that's thinking about prospective consumption desire to eat so that's kind of accumulation of four parameters that are measured through visual analog scale and uh, what we show is that individually we can see differences in hunger and desire to eat uh, prospective consumption that's how much do you think you could eat first and then in the composite appetite score um, and you can ask and we present data which is time linked and you, and you can see that if you looked at the area under the curve, if we express it like that, then people, the volunteers when they were consuming the 
morning loaded diet, we've got a lower area under the curve. So now it's normal that hunger and appetite changes throughout the day. It goes so when you get up in the morning, you haven't eaten, then hunger score will be high and it comes down again once you've eaten and goes back up again. So that that flow is normal and it's just how when we eat and what we eat can tam tamper that down. So we also measured um, gut hormones, so um, that's in the blood. So what we see is the uh, reduction in ghrelin. Ghrelin, remember, is traditionally thought of as the hunger hormone. And we can see that that ties in really nicely, that there's a reduction in ghrelin with the morning calorie eating. Very good, yeah. And I, I think that, that was really nice to see that it matches and that the hormone levels that you can objectively measure also match yes. with the subjectively measured yeah. appetite and hunger yes. from the participants. It's nice yeah. when things <laughs> yeah. come together. <laughs> it doesn't always happen like no, that, indeed. Though, does it? Yeah. yeah. No, that's also my experience in science. Uh -huh. um, okay. And I think what you elaborated a little bit yourself on in the paper is the duration of your diet intervention, which was four weeks. How does that compare to the other studies that you mentioned before? And yes. do you think that it is a strength of your study or would you like to do longer interventions so, if possible? And what are yeah. your thoughts on this? Four weeks per treatment is kind of limit that is practicable for, for our volunteers because that remember that means they're on a study diet for you know 10 weeks in total. Now, that's a long time for somebody to be eating rowet diets and not being able to you know take part in all the sort of social and cultural aspects of eating and socializing and drinking. So remember our study was within subject um, design and the other studies were parallel designs. So what they do there is the subject only receives one treatment for a much longer period of time. What we did notice that in those other studies that I mentioned earlier on, they were much longer uh, over months, uh, but we did see a significant effect at four weeks. And that's kind of what we based it on, that if we were going to find an effect uh, it would be within four weeks. Now, yes, ideally, it would be nice to do a much longer study, and that's something I would like to do in the future to look at um, big breakfast effect on appetite control and body weight regulation over a prolonged period of time. And another finding that uh, I would just quote you there on the results section, I think, uh, protein mass was significantly lower after the morning loaded diet compared to the evening loaded diet and washout, but it was not lower than, by, than baseline. How do you explain these findings on protein mass? I can't. It's slightly <laughs> counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah. Both high-protein diets, so I think these are statistically significant results, but I'm not sure that we should be reading too much into that. I, I can't explain that. And the important point there is that fat mass was similar as well, because, of course, people, the point of weight loss isn't just to lose mass, it is to you know, improve health parameters. So maybe if we had a much larger sample size, again, but that's hideously expensive, <laughs> then we could try and tease out some of these changes in protein mass. Um, but, you know, we've measured physical activity, we've measured the diet was constant, the protein is constant, unless there's some effect of timing of eating that when you deliver the protein might have an, a subtle effect because we didn't measure 
you know, routine turnover such. Yeah. And uh, so, the exercise activities of, of people, like just how in general, I mean, just walking and things that you check for that, like at what times of the day your participants were more active? Yes, yeah, very similar and they're fairly sedentary. Okay. So, you know, there's nothing, uh, none of them were training or athletes or these people were already yeah. excluded. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really just a counterintuitive finding, as you said. So. Yes. Interesting to follow up on that. Okay, and then uh, we we already talked about appetite, but what we didn't say yet is kind of the influence of the circadian clock on appetite. And there I would also like to elaborate a little bit more on. So what what do we know about the circadian clock and its influence on appetite? So I suppose um, what we can touch on is that it's bidirectional. Of course, our circadian rhythm has a physiological mechanism in terms of um, the release of different metabolites throughout the day, whether it's glucose or insulin. These would be common ones to cite. So let's take glucose just to touch on that a little bit and that we know that glucose has a time of day effect and that we're more glucose sensitive in the morning and less or more insulin resistant in the evening. So that's already been established. That's for some time in the literature in the circadian rhythm literature. So I suppose the new literature now is what we call chrononutrition. So combining timing of eating and what we eat. That is much newer. Um, and we're trying to still tease out the true effects of, of clock time and circadian rhythm and the food that we eat. And when I say it's bidirectional, so we've got all these uh, ebb and flow and changes of um, hormones and metabolites in terms of, in response to time of day. But of course, uh, eating and feeding is a, a cue to help regulate the circadian rhythm. So that also reinforces circadian rhythm in terms of a standard eating pattern, but I could you, you could have mentioned that for sleep as well. So these are all cues. Of course, our circadian rhythm is controlled in the brain, but of course, other tissues have their own circadian clocks. And if your readers go to the cell metabolism paper, there's actually a cluster of papers on diet and exercise. It's amazing papers and there's some other papers on late eating i'm thinking of frank shear's paper it's really interesting yeah. um yeah. reviewed that one i found it fascinating that it, the two papers came out at the same time and uh, complement each other so so they for example looked at clock gene expression and the articles tissue and taking fat biopsies that's not something that we did so i think that i hinted at earlier a lot of this work is driven from animal models and whilst animal models ha have a use i would really like to see more research in humans because there's actually a lot of factors that we don't know about whether the time of the overnight fast whether time restricted eating whether diet composition because if, if we take the conclusions of this paper that Eating, you know, a big breakfast and more calories in the morning is beneficial uh, for weight loss in terms of appetite control. Then, an intuitive question will be, what will I eat, Alex? So, mm -hmm. so I think this feels still a very new area. It feels a young science. There are lots of circadian systems that have been established 
in these animal models, um, but we need to translate them into human models and find out how much we can push the human system, but also be mindful that humans are trying to control the obesity epidemic. So, Yeah, and it's uh, nice that you mentioned this bi-directionality of the circadian clock and appetite. And as you also mentioned, Frank Scher, that's also somebody that I would like to get on the on the show at some point. Speaking of chrononutrition, um, I think one question that really is um, yeah, obvious here in that regard is the influence of chronotype on yes. feelings uh -huh. of appetite and uh -huh. fullness. So early mm -hmm. morning versus late night owls. What are your thoughts and what, what is known in this regard? Because I guess we don't have that many studies uh -huh. yet, right? No. So I am... Um... When I think about that, so there's two things you could have mentioned there is, is chronotype, which is more about, to try and explain that a little bit, is about whether we're naturally a morning person, so like a lark, always use the bird scenario, whether you're an evening person, so whether you're more an owl, so whether you feel more alert in the evening or whether you feel uh, more productive in the morning. And these are quite extremes, I would say. And it's more natural that we would be somewhere in between. Yeah. Now, um, the Leeds group with Graham Finlayson have published one acute study looking at chronotype. Um, last time I looked, that's Christine Bellio. I, ho I hope I pronounced her, her correctly. And mm. um, it was slightly disappointing and I don't think they found effect of chronotype and appetite. But as I say, that was only looking at within one day and I think within one eating episode. So that's really interesting. The other feature you could have pulled there was um, looking at uh, whether, you know, there are genes that predispose people to being a morning, uh, you know, a lark or an owl. And I think that also from personal experience changes with age as well. Yeah, and I find, find the idea fascinating that if you are a true a morning lark or a true uh, yeah night owl that you might that your metabolism might be primed at a different time of the day for the food to come in maybe that's something that we can discuss as well that your big breakfast scheme might not necessarily be the best option for a true night owl right so energy metabolism is metabolism is going to be similar regardless of the time of day and I suspect that the chronotype, which you could see as a behavioural phenomenon, is going to be the influencing factor. So people may choose to be more active in the evening. And of course, that will influence energy metabolism or just at least burning off fuels. But I don't think, I don't see that it would influence the sort of circadian uh, effects. So, but teasing those factors out is really difficult because... You've always got clock time, degree of fasting, dark and light. These are so in intertwined with each other that it's actually very difficult to try and pull these apart. The interesting thing, you know, when I've spoken about this study, I've always said, you know, big breakfast is, you know, some one of the key features of this study. But somebody else said to me, mm, that's really interesting, but I work shifts and uh, it means that if I eat late, I don't need to feel guilty. I can still lose weight. And I'm like, yeah, for sure. So I think it's also good news for people who do have to eat late. 
Yeah, indeed. I think my initial thought was was more about the clock time. And indeed, if you think about uh -huh. the, the early morning lark, maybe waking up at, at five or six and then having breakfast half an hour or an hour later, the, the late night hour will probably wake up at 11 a.m. or 12 often much more complex as you just pointed out uh -huh. um and maybe if if you just um consider the degree of fasting then maybe the response is the same for both of them but we don't know of yeah. course without doing yeah. the studies yeah. yeah i think it's also interesting that you gave your definition of what breakfast is which is like you said i think um half an hour to an hour upon waking but there is no consensus in the literature what breakfast is so I always read James Beck's work um, from Bath um, yeah. on what breakfast is. And he I use his definition, which is much more broad than that. That's within two to three hours of waking. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting, isn't it? That <laughs> you know, we can't even agree what, what is <laughs> what is breakfast. Yeah. No, and it's true. I mean, it also it depends on if it's a if it's a work day or a weekend day again, because I guess in, on a weekend day you would take much more time to prepare a nice breakfast in a relaxed environment, whereas on a work day you just have to somehow squeeze it in before going into meetings. Yes. Into uh -huh. yeah, so I, I yeah, really difficult. Anyway, um, moving on to the other questions that I had about the results. So you already mentioned the gastric emptying that you also measured. What were the results on that when you compare the morning versus evening loaded uh, diet? So I think um, the gastric emptying really reflected the, it was measured in the morning. So that means that the results reflected the calorie loading, really. And that you can understand that gastric emptying would take longer if you consume more food and more calories compared to, uh, so that's big breakfast compared to small breakfast. So that's really reflecting just more what the input was uh, rather than trying to tease out effects of circadian and meal timing. So I think that uh, what you need to do there is do repeat measurements across the day and having volunteers living in a unit or indeed we do have more another paper to publish where we're measuring um, gastric emptying with Jonathan Johnston and study using a phase delay protocol and that will maybe help give further insights as to the role of actual time of day and eating. And that's something, I mean, people might not be familiar with these kind of interventions, but I hope, as as I said, when getting Frank Scher on the on the show, that he will provide us with all the details on, on these different schemes that you can do to disentangle influence of uh -huh. circadian rhythm, clock time. There it's, are so many different things and protocols yes. to do. What you, what you need is a lab where you control the locks or lighting. And then you establish uh, a phase response by changing the lighting cycle so that you desynchronize clock time to light time. So yeah. um, that's why it's often used for, for jet lag, as if you were sort of jumping on a plane and then going to a different different time zone or light zone, dark zone. 
Yeah, similar to these initial bunker studies, I think, conducted in Germany, where they mm. also deprive people of any information of clock time and then time. saw uh -huh. how, how 24 hour rhythms evolved and yes. uh, changed um, a little bit over time on, in respect uh -huh. to different stimuli. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, great study setup, but really difficult and uh, I guess also expensive to do. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, something that I'm personally also very interested is in because um, my group in, in Maastricht is looking at type 2 diabetes and we are also right. using continuous glucose monitors a lot uh -huh. in our research. So what did you find? So you already said you use them to check adherence of your participants because, of course, you should be able to see these three peaks in the data mm -hmm. in terms of the glucose response. What mm -hmm. else did you see when you compared the two diet interventions? Mm -hmm. What we did was we um, took different clock times as blocks. So we st split the, the day into uh, four-hour blocks. So sort of midnight to 4 a.m., 4 a.m. to 8, 8 to 12, 12 noon to 4 and four to eight, and then back to eight to 12. And we only report one feature here, and that there was a significantly higher postprandial rise in the interstitial glucose, that's the CGM data, um, for the early loading diet, and that's between eight and 12 p.m. And that was when it was compared to the uh, morning loading regime. And in the paper, I just make a comment. I think this just reflects the greater calorie load with the larger dinner meal. But what is interesting is that we is that the lines are very similar in the morning when you compare the breakfast, the big breakfast and the small breakfast. I don't I hope that's not too confusing. But if you think of lines going up and down throughout the day in response to eating. In the evening period, we see a greater rise in glucose with the larger meal, and that's perhaps not surprising. And then the reverse is reciprocal of that, is that but we don't see that when you have the big breakfast, we don't see that large rise. I think that's equally interesting. No, it is. it is. I was also surprised by these findings. And maybe just for listeners, because I'm not sure if I, I actually introduced uh, CGMs to listeners yet. So it's basically what we do is having uh, a little device with a small needle uh, on the upper arm of participants. But I think you used the uh, devices that are actually placed on the belly of people, right? Yes. Then yeah. I think we've changed now, but yes, uh -huh. yeah. it's similar. It's just diff different brands and uh, the needle is very tiny. It's just placed into the skin and take readings every five seconds and that means you get a beautiful time course lots of data and you can uh, you used to be able to calibrate with finger pricks but yes that's it's really a very uh, non-invasive measurement for tracking over time yeah and i think lastly so going already away from the results more into the future what would be the next steps now for you based on this clinical trial. So what are mm -hmm. the next research things that you want to look at, uh, trials that you would like to design or that are already in the working? We have um, put in our grant to look at shift workers, but that seems quite intuitive to look at whether um, timing of eating can potentially have a positive impact on their metabolic health profile. 
I think in the UK, we don't have any dietary evidence or advice for people who are working shifts. So should they eat when they're on shift in the dark cycle or should they be eating when they come off shift in the light cycle? And does it make a difference in terms of metabolic health risk? So that seems that if you use this data, it tends to suggest that having a bigger breakfast first thing in the morning and the light period would tend to promote appetite control uh, and metabolic health have a positive influence for those that are working shifts. I'm also interested in time-restricted eating in terms of other paradigm that this could be useful for is if you are going to use a time period of not when to uh, refrain from eating, so whether it's 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating or or vice versa, you know, or, or some of them are even, you know, 10 hours. So when should you be eating? So if you have a, a period where you're feasting and fasting, should you be eating in the morning period and then have a longer overnight fast? Or should you continue your fast in the morning, skip breakfast and then eat later in the day? So I think that is really interesting in terms of what would be beneficial for uh, metabolic health and appetite control. Yeah, that's, that sounds very, very exciting. And I guess uh, you are currently not the only ones looking at that. I think so, a lot of other labs are also looking at time-restricted eating. I also recently had uh, Courtney Peterson on the podcast. I still have to publish that episode. but um, So I, when this one is coming out, listeners will already have listened to that one. So yeah. they, they can make the connection, I guess. All right, then let's make the translation to practice a little bit more. And something that I think is, is interesting to discuss is in terms of getting your opinion on who would you now recommend to practice the morning loaded or evening loaded uh, diet regime? This is a study about weight loss. So it's really um, a toolkit for those that are using uh, a dietary approach to control uh, calorie intake to achieve weight loss and fat mass loss. So um, it's a, a toolkit. I think I've said that before. So it's one dietary approach that might be useful because, of course, we know that one of the main reasons why people fail to lose weight or don't comply to a weight loss diet is because they feel hungry. So um, I think it should be interesting to think about that we can use diet and consuming more calories in the morning to help people stick to that calorie deficit throughout the day. And if we can find tools to help people lose weight, then I think that's a very positive thing. And is there, in contrast, any population that you can think of where you would really discourage people to, to practice any of these diet approaches? Uh, yes, I mean, of course, people who have um, eating disorders, any eating disorders, um, you know, you need to be extremely careful when you're thinking about manipulating diet. And people who have type 2 diabetes, then I think that that would be interesting. There isn't a consensus in terms of um, the role of diet composition or time of eating for, for those that have um, type 2 diabetes. So I think, you know, we are literally just scratching at the surface here in terms of starting this journey. And I think we still have a lot to learn. What I would say is that the National Health Service in the UK isn't set up for this. We don't do precision nutrition. We don't do personalised nutrition. 
and we don't practice lifestyle medicine. So I always think that prevention is better than cure. Uh, I understand living with obesity is a challenge and my research is very much embracing that in terms of what can I do to help people living with obesity. Also accepting that obesity is a chronic and relapsing disease. So we often see yo-yo dieting, which yeah. is is not good in terms of the effect on both mental health and physical health. So, you know, I've said a lot of things there that I just, I, I don't have all the answers for, but I, I, I do keep it in context. This is only one study. Yes, it's been really nice study and it's been amazing experience to publish it and sell. It's been wonderful to speak to lots of press about the study, but it is only one study. Yeah. Well, it's, I think, really important to put in perspective. And I think, uh, so just last question in terms of uh, populations to practice it. Do you think there is any evidence indicating that um, otherwise healthy individuals could in some way benefit from practicing morning-loaded, evening-loaded diet interventions? So I'm thinking of, for example, athletes, people looking for, for general health um, goals, um, do you do you think that there's any ev evidence that one of the diet approaches could improve things like like improvements in focus um, over the day, um, things like improving lean mass? So what what are your thoughts on that? So my experience in those working in the sports nutrition field is that there's a lot of emphasis on high protein diets. These were high protein diets. That's interesting. But uh, I also think we need to be quite pragmatic and practicable and that people who are training and who engage in sports on a regular basis usually already plan their food intake around their exercise times so there's no yeah. point in me uh, making comments generalized comments about time of eating for people who exercise in the evening compared to those that are are perhaps exercising in the morning because yeah. having a big breakfast means you can't then go and exercise immediately after that would be quite uncom uncomfortable so I think that um, in terms of optimizing body composition and fat-free mass then we need to think about the amount of protein we consume we need to think about the type of protein we consume in terms of environmental sustainability in terms of meat versus plant and then we can think about timing of consumption and Really, there the message is, isn't it, to spread it across the day and not to try and stick to the habitual eating pattern that we both reflected on at the start of eating more calories and probably more protein in the evening. Yeah. So now these are really tricky to get completely right every day of the week, but these are the these are the mainstay um, in terms of what you know what my considerations are. So. And we touched on that before in terms of that we would agree that the UK, but also the Netherlands might actually rather in practice have their biggest meal in the evening. Uh, actually, for Germany, where I'm originally from, I think it's the case that we have the biggest meal for lunch. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if that's really a German thing. Uh, what did you ever think of testing that kind of splitting the calories different over the day that you actually put the emphasis on the lunch meal yeah, so the I middle, think, well, Mark, middle meal um, 
the Marta Galilei's work is based in Spain, and that is actually when she calls it early eating, it is lunchtime actually. <laughs> so, um, and if you've been and lived in Spain, then you will can kind of reflect on that. They tend to have more calories at lunchtime, have a siesta, sleep yeah. after lunch. And then because it's the hottest part of the day as well, particularly during summer summer time, and then they meet and then they go out and eat in the evening and have tapas, which of course means small plates. So we're already, you know, describing a phenomenon that is cultural that sort of links in with this time of eating. So, and that's really late, like nine o'clock, so 10 o'clock. So, so yes, there are cultures with different eating habits and you know i i've had many emails from people in different <laughs> cultures telling me what what their cultural um habits are um and uh i think we need to embrace that eating should be a positive experience as well <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh one last practical question that i had was um because one thing that I think gets a little bit too less discussed, at least uh, when it comes to just the clinical trials, is of course that we can change uh, or have interventions that change appetite, that uh, induce weight loss and so on. And you already touched upon the yo-yo the effect. I think one aspect that is the food environment that people are in. So, um, so if you instruct people to, in, in your in your case, to focus with calories more on the on the morning the first meal of the day but you uh, then after your intervention you let them in, in their free living environment where they probably going to be exposed to a lot of cravy foods in in the evenings particularly when they are as you mentioned uh, having social activities in the evening um, with alcohol with um, things that yeah just sweet foods fast food and so on what are your thoughts on on this kind of practical perspective of on the one hand having a tool as you mentioned in your in your toolkit in your in your box with which you can lower appetite uh, especially in the evening maybe but you don't change people's food environment in general so these are kind of push pull systems aren't they yeah. so and that's why trying keep my mind in the context of this is a weight loss diet so for people who are actively trying to lose weight this could be a really useful tool because in the real world then if you're trying to lose weight then you be more aware of all those extra calories in the evening and um, you be trying to account for that so but what I would say is yes that the big breakfast is in combination with the small smaller evening meal because people do say to me Alex there's no way I could eat a big breakfast in the morning and I'm like well that is really interesting uh, have you tried consuming less in the evening and then you might be more able to consume more at breakfast so the two go hand in hand yeah that's a good point yeah all right so I think that's uh, the end of the practice perspective um, I would like to finish the episode off with a more personal perspective. So first of all, I would like to ask you, how do you actually implement your research findings personally? Do you actually practice some form of time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting? Do you rather consume big breakfasts or are you just um, messy with all of that and you are not able to adhere to any of that yourself? Um, so I think 
I have been asked this quite a few times. <laughs> of course, yeah. I'm going to give you the stock answer because <laughs> I think that my role is as a scientist and I'm speaking to you as a scientist. If I contacted you and said, hi, it's Alex in Aberdeen, I'd like to tell you what I had for breakfast, there would be absolutely no interest whatsoever. I think that, you know, over 25 years of working in nutrition science, I've been asked this question, what did you eat for breakfast so many times? And what I would like to say is it doesn't matter what I ate for breakfast because really what I want to deal with is evidence-based research. And whilst anecdotal reports are interesting and N equals one studies are interesting, then it's not peer reviewed. And it, so therefore, Professor Johnston, it doesn't matter what I had for my breakfast. So um, from a personal point of view, yes, I'm interested in promoting health and well-being. And you can't help but to learn from your experience and, you know, but some people want me to share that some people don't <laughs> uh, and you know i'm passionate about my science i want to live my science and i want other people to benefit from my science so i suppose that that gives you a little bit of a clue to what what my own personal thoughts are yeah no that's that's actually a great response and i totally agree with you that actually a lot of scientists push that a little bit too far with saying oh the I'm actually doing this and this, and that's you should also do this because I'm a scientist. So I, I really I, I feel your point here a lot. Next personal question is where is um that so in terms of what the next steps in in your clinical trials will be, I think we discussed that. But what do you, as a professor and scientist, what is it that you and that's particularly interesting for me? As a PhD student, is what do you want to achieve in your professional uh, career as a scientist? Yeah, so I actually have a new grant. It's a very large UKRI-funded grant, uh, 1.6 million, and it's a multidisciplinary team. I feel that um, strongly that I really work best as part of a team, and you know, in this case, I'm leading a team of amazing UK researchers. There are nine academic centres and we're working with a food re retailer to look at food inequalities and obesity to try and improve the uh, experience in the retail food environment. So in the supermarkets for those living with obesity, living with food inequalities. And I think when I wrote that grant, the cost of living crisis wasn't as nearly profound as it is now. So this work feels so timely. I feel amazing to get this opportunity to work in this area to support those living with obesity, to give them a voice in terms of co-creation, co-delivery and in, the, in terms of the science and the impact. Um, and I really feel a huge responsibility to, you know, to, to transform the food system in the UK. So that's slightly away from nutrition, but I think that you know the experience and skills that I've got to bring together this amazing team will really make a difference to obesity in the UK. No, that's that's a very strong answer. Thanks for sharing that. And um, one last thing that I like to do always with people at the end of the show is to share some, if if you like, some some personal funny anecdote from your research. So. 
basically moving a little bit away from the from the seriousness of the the life of a scientist especially i think in in clinical trials with with diet interventions there are funny things that you might encounter that you might be willing to share yeah well you know honestly i could write a book on this. <laughs> okay and um i you know it's a pleasure to meet people but humans are not rats and that you might tell them to do something but actually they're going to do their own sweet thing yeah. <laughs> and you know we're all different so i've had some amazing positive experiences and i've had some amazing really negative experiences in working with people and you know and, that, and i think that's important to say that you know i i can speak about an amazing study but it's a team effort so that's number one yes it's really nice to speak about this but I know how many hours have gone into this by the entire team to get to this point in time so I can reflect on um, you know we were doing a study looking at um, protein loading and I uh, went into the uh, volunteer lounge where the volunteers were supposed to be eating the food and just so happened to walk past the dustbin and there were all the the burgers that they were supposed to be eating in the dustbin so i just thought okay this has been a complete waste of time so people you know say that they've eaten it but actually have they eaten it i'm always skeptical and people who know me you know will say probably i don't have a sense of humor i think you know research can be quite challenging but you know you have to support the team and that includes the volunteers to get through their journey. So without the volunteers, none of this research would be possible. Yeah, I had very similar experiences with that also with respect to adherence to, to actually eating food. So people, because we have these uh, metabolic chambers in Maastricht and we then actually have like a little airtight door um, where we can give people the meal like on a tray. We yes. put it in there. They they open it at the other side so that the the air basically stays the same within the room at that second in time. Mm -hmm. And when they give back the tray when they finished it, they we also had situations where people tried to hide certain meat pieces mm -hmm. under the dishes so that we wouldn't see that they didn't eat it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean we used to use whole body indirect calorimeters, and I can even yeah. think of I used to be the one in charge of. Um, calibrating them and I remember one day the, the airlines blew off the cylinders and I nearly lost my eardrums so yes um, science is great and you know it's a, it's a privilege to be able to use these really sophisticated tools to understand physiology so yeah I think with that we can end the show and just lastly one one question's would be that um, how can listeners get in touch with you on social media, et cetera, if they are interested in following up on some things? Yes, yeah, so I mainly use Twitter and um, my handle is at Dr. Underscore A Underscore Johnston. Or, of course, they can email me at the University of Aberdeen. I do have a homepage there. So, you know, I like meeting people. If you're going to be in Scotland, then I'm more than happy to show you our facilities and it's you know uh, i think that you learn a lot by by listening to other people and reflecting on your own science so, thank yeah you. no that's that's great and i will make sure that i uh link your twitter handle and an email and so on uh to the show notes um just as all the 
literature and studies that we discussed today. And uh, with that, I would like to officially thank you, um, Alex, for taking the time. It was a pleasure. And um, yeah, hopefully we, we can chat again at another point on new data coming out from your lab. Great. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Alex Johnstone. And I guess you learned a little bit about when to consume most of your calories. Maybe you're going to adjust your daily routine a little bit in that regard and see whether you want to shift most of your calories more to the earlier meal of the day or to other times of the day based on your chronotype assumptions, maybe. So uh, let's see what you can take out of this episode and what kind of information you found the most interesting. And please also feel free to share that with me via Twitter. And that also leads me to the fact that I'm always happy to receive feedback about how I am doing as a host on the podcast. If you keep finding the, the guests that we have interesting um, as interview partners here, and if you have suggestions in terms of who you would like to see or listen to on the show, uh, let me know. And with that, I hope that you will join uh, the next episodes as well. We will switch gears again a little bit towards uh, body temperature. Um, so how does body temperature change over the day? So changes from day to, to the night. I guess that is something that you know by now, also based on other episodes. How is skin temperature regulated? How can we influence performance with cold uh, water immersion, for example, but also with hot um, baths or sauna. And also we're going to go into um, clinical interventions where the heat and cold are used to improve glucose metabolism and type 2 diabetes, for example. That's something that my institution is very much known for in Maastricht. And we will go into the details of all these studies and mechanisms and um, I hope that you will enjoy it.